Hey science fans, I have another fantastic podcast to recommend to you guys. The Waterline Podcast. Everything you need to know about the science of water. Have we managed to develop the most sustainable irrigation techniques? Can water be the bringer of peace? Can flushing your toilet light up your house? The answer to all of these questions and many more in the Waterline Podcast which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech as part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. It's a new podcast that, uh, is, that is created to communicate the many facets of water. So please, check out an episode. I've, uh, I've checked out several. I actually went back and listened to the very first episode, which gives you a nice overview of uh, sources of fresh water all around the world, rivers, lakes, underground sources, and to see how, how delicate they are, how prone they are to contamination. This is exceptionally important stuff for our world and our future, and I highly recommend this podcast. Search Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Welcome, everybody, to the Here We Are podcast. I hope you enjoyed uh, the last two episodes last week, trying the new thing, trying the charity stuff. This week, we are back into getting into the real deep uh, science stuff. <laughs> How educated does that sound? Science stuff. I, uh, I, I gave you guys a some very long intros and outros last week, so I'm going to keep them real short uh, this week, and I actually bumped up this episode because I think this one is going to be real popular, and I think you guys are going to like it a lot. Some really, really interesting conversation, so enjoy. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. Misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today I'm in Vancouver, Washington. I'm uh, sitting down today with Anthony Lopez, who is Assistant Professor of International Relations and Political Psychology at Washington State University. Hey, Anthony, how are you? Thanks for being on the show. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Um, so you do uh, some interesting, you, you talk about a lot of um, politics and international relations and warfare, but all, often through the lens of um, of evolution and evolutionary psychology, uh, right? And kind of uh, mm-hmm. with some biological yeah. anthropology influence. Um, so I was wondering, first off, we've never really talked about, uh, j- just to set up a few things until we get a, a little more specifically into your work. One, one thing that I've been pretty uh, interested in um, lately, uh, Mostly because I, I, I just finished this book, uh, *Sapiens: um, The Brief History of Human Time* or *Humankind*. Have you have you heard of it at no, all? No, that sounds really um, interesting. Though. Yeah, Yuval Harari. Uh, he's uh, Israeli, um, but uh, but he talks a lot about um, kind of intersubjective ideas and and uh, and and ever since that. So I haven't really. On the podcast, we've never really talked about kind of um, how 
people organize themselves around these intersubjective um, phenomena and, um, and how um, I'm really interested in how humans kind of evolved or, or became able to communicate in these enormous numbers over these kind of big ideas. And I was wondering if, um, because we've never really talked about memes or anything on the program before, and I was wondering if you could give like just maybe a little 101 into um, even what like intersubjective, what, what you mean when, when you're talking about intersubjectivity. Yeah, well, that, that is a great question. Um, in the word intersubjective is one that I can reliably use to turn my students' <laughs> faces white. Um, and, and I always, uh, it's a challenge particularly because, you know, I teach intra international relations among other courses. And it's always the week on constructivism that is really like pulling teeth because there's a lot of complicated language and, and terms and ideas like intersubjectivity that aren't you know, when you talk about realism, you can talk about power, pragmatism, self-interest, or liberalism, you can talk about, you know, self-interest again, or, or markets, and people already have the language and the intuitive sense of what these words mean. But when you talk about inner subjectivity, you really have to start from scratch and for, from first, principle, uh, first principles and, and explain what you mean by these words. So um, as I understand it, and I think there are different ideas on what inner subjectivity means, which is not, su not surprising, um, the idea of inner subjectivity is, is you sort of have your subjective experience of the world. I have my subjective experience of the world. And then when we communicate, we create these shared meanings. And those shared meanings are in the, in the domain of, of inner subjectivity. Um, and that's really important for us as a species because we're a social species and we're designed to think about others' intentions and others are designed to think about our intentions and to use that information to make decisions about who we should be friends with or allies with or who we should be suspicious of, who we're willing to cooperate with or not. So the question becomes, I mean, clearly the, we, we, I think, have these psychological adaptations that allow us to engage in really complex social interactions. But then the question becomes, you know, how, how, how does this play out in particular domains relative to others? For example, when groups or individuals are in conflict with others or when they're cooperating with others or, the, for example, the challenge of uh, finding a relationship partner versus the challenge of finding someone as an ally to, you know, have your back in a fight with someone else. These are, these are really distinct problems with distinct reproductive consequences historically, ancestrally. And so you would expect the mind to sort of contain privileged hypotheses about the way, uh, you know, the, the proper way to approach these situations. So on the one hand, we have this equipment that, that guides decision-making and motivation across these domains. And on the other hand, that equipment that that those mechanisms are designed to, to be flexible to the contingent information that it gets in whatever particular situation uh, from uh, from from others around them so it's it's a really complex issue I think um, it, it's tough to sort of parse the complexity uh, of that and think about you know to what extent is what we're seeing in a social situation you know, to what extent is that? Uh, sort of determined by biology, to what extent is that uh, a consequence of acculturation and socialization? And I think ultimately, in every instance, it's a little bit of both. And so the question is, how do we know, how do we understand the interaction between the two rather than trying to say, well, this is completely intersubjective uh, or this is completely biological because ultimately it's both. 
Right. Uh, yeah, that that was extremely well said and and uh, well explained. It, it's it's uh, I think kind of almost counterintuitive and a little bit you do have to like reset a little bit to wrap your head around the idea of how our brains kind of perceive what is reality and what isn't and a lot of people don't i mean it's it's not intuitive how much of our reality or our perception is is very subjective like you know you have objective reality which is you know physics and gravity and and that sort of thing but um, it's harder for people to realize that things like the United States or, or something like that is is just an idea that we've all kind of agreed upon that we use to organize ourselves and 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 these were sort of these started off as sort of individual opinions that then started to spread and and get agreed upon and even things like uh you know the and these are a lot of the most important things in people's lives ideas of of like justice or uh freedom or whatever it might be or, or democracy or communism and and i think a lot of people kind of um it seems like uh it, you know anytime anytime people organize around these ideas it always seems like common sense to them or or like some objective truth or uh the reason why there's democracy or capitalism or something is be, is because this is a fundamental truth that can't be denied you know it's all, it's always kind of explained <laughs> like that um so so it's just interesting to start thinking about how things are um really very subjective and uh and how those little ideas can then organize these these um, larger ideas, like, like for example, you, you do a lot of stuff with with war and uh, 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 kind of warfare and, and politics, and it it's easy to see. I feel like how um, a hunter gatherer or a small tribe of primates or something kind of understands um, in and out group behavior when it's these small tribes, but to have large numbers of people that are never even going to meet necessarily organize and be a part of a huge tribe like a country or the world or whatever is is kind of uh mind-blowing and very thought-provoking to me um so uh, how how is it i i don't know how much you go into evolution but um can you describe some of those um, some of those early underpinnings or, or maybe how some, some of the theories of, of how that transition happened from going from these small little conflicts to, you know, then having to manage these bigger ideas once bigger cities started being constructed? Yeah, it's actually a great follow-up question because the answer ultimately, again, is this mix of our biological inheritance and <clears throat> the social and cultural institutions that we've developed again, sort of, quote-unquote, under the influence of this inherited biology to solve these bigger problems that are, as you put it, evolutionarily novel. So, for example, and the challenge of responding to this question is is um, that it wraps up a lot of evolutionary challenges in one. So the very, the very first challenge will be, you know, can we say that something like warfare, because if we're going to make a claim that there are adaptations or psychological adaptations for for fighting or for warfare or for coalitional aggression broadly, then we have to make the prior claim or investigate the prior claim that 
something like coalitional aggression or simply groups fighting has been a dynamic that's been evolutionarily recurrent over thousands and thousands of generations and that has been reproductively significant. And so there's this whole debate about, you know, how ancient is warfare? Has, is it, has it been ancient enough? Is it enough of a selection pressure? And um, I think that the, the archaeological, the paleoarchaeological evidence on that is um, it's inconclusive, necessarily inconclusive, because at some point we have to realize that we can't go back in time, we can't piece it all together perfectly, but we can make strong inferences about patterns of behavior that are likely to have happened or occurred over long periods of time. And so from my perspective, what we can do then is we can take that incomplete information and we can piece it together by building hypotheses about the way, about what adaptations we might have, what psychological mechanisms we might have in our brain to solve these problems, right? And if and if those hypotheses are confirmed, that in itself, the organization of the brain becomes evidence of that ancestral uh, activity or pattern of behavior. So we can say, so we can go on the assumption, we can say, well, warfare has been uh, evolutionarily recurrent and reproductively significant. And if that's the case, then we would expect there to be this complex coalitional psychology that's designed to do lots of things like uh, track participant information, uh, track participant information like who's participating, who's not participating, um, on, and all of these sort of related variables like loyalty, um, and use that information to 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 help one come to a conclusion about you know should I participate in this conflict? Um, how should I react towards others who don't participate in this conflict? Should I seek to punish them? Should I try and reward them? Uh, should we honor those who do participate in this conflict? You know, you know, we see, for example, across culture, individuals who behave in particular ways in, in conflict, particular, uh, particularly those who have uh, uh, sacrificed a lot or engaged in risky behavior. We give them medals of honor or other sorts of mm-hmm. accolades that we're saying, basically, we appreciate what you're doing for the group, right? And this is something that all cultures uh, really sort of engage in. And so... We can see evidence of this complex coalitional psychology at work in, in, in lots of different ways. And then the question becomes, how does that evolved coalitional psychology that's designed to interpret and respond to small-scale coalitional dynamics, how does that evolved coalitional psychology make possible the big world of international politics? And how does it interpret the big world of international politics, given that it's so evolutionarily novel? And this is where the role of culture really comes in. Uh, because we have these big institutions that are designed to to do the things that that would be carried out just on an emotional level. So instead of of me <clears throat> saying to you, you know, great job, you did great in this fight. Uh, you know, you're, you're really fantastic. You're great. Here, have some have some of this food that I have. Instead of this interpersonal reward and punishment system, we have these big institutions that confer awards or or that punish individuals by putting them in jail if you don't right. you know, participate in the fighting. Yeah, like if you look at if you look at say the animal kingdom, and and you'll see um, a, a lot of times um, it, most of most of the conflict within a species is you know mating season, and, and a couple guys or multiple guys fighting over over ladies for reproductive rights or whatever, and you see a lot of this in in humans as well, and and, and so it'd be easy to. Be, say oh well maybe the basis of all war is is because of this kind of fight over this this minimal parental investment stuff and and guys trying to compete for for women but if you if you ask any 
most any person why we go to war they wouldn't they wouldn't offer that explanation and right. it, and when you see advertisements for you know joining the military or you know commercials for you know joining the coast guard or whatever it might be it's, it's not like a bunch of women in bikinis or something like that yeah. right. and a lot of the conflicts that that were in you know the, the modern international system is is really evolutionarily novel and it you know the most common form of fighting both today and ancestrally was the raid you know and raids happen they happen quickly they're largely reactive they happen at night uh, they're 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 low risk and so this is really i mean there's a there's there's a lot of evidence showing that we are sort of designed with the, the, with mechanisms that are you know ready to engage in this kind of of of, of low risk um quick raiding type uh coalitional aggression so and so the kind of things that nation states do, which is engage in in big uh, open field battles, is, is really uh, first of all, it's not low risk at all. It's extremely high risk, and it, it occurs in the backdrop of these big political discussions of you know what's the what's the reason why we're you know invading Iraq? What are the you know what are the real threats and dangers there? And a lot of the threats and dangers and opportunities are cast in terms of very simple, easy to access rationales like. Um, you know, what kind of a person is Saddam Hussein? Is he going to come get us if we don't get him first? Um, and, and I think one where you see these mechanisms really active are in situations that parallel those situations for which our minds are, are ready to uh, interpret and respond to, like revenge, for example. Like after mm. 9-11, you really, you really saw a, a deep emotional reaction in a lot of people, regardless of whether they thought war was the answer. Uh, you saw a deep emotional reaction to, uh, on behalf of not just Americans, but people, I think, around the world reacting to this, this, this event, either with some form of outrage, uh, particularly some form of outrage. And, you know, outrage is an incredibly useful emotion because it organizes large groups of people. And that's exactly what you need to fight and win a war successfully. So these emotions are playing, you know, they're, they're, they're serving their function. Uh, even without us having to think about, you know, how are we going to build a coalition to attack this enemy that's attacked us? Instead of trying to figure this out rationally and cognitively, you know, the emotion of revenge just does it for us. And it's also, I mean, the, these emotions are pretty handy when you don't have things like drafts or something like that earlier on in, right. in, in human history, when it, it, it is very much kind of outrage can almost be like a mental um, contract where where you're expressing no i'm very serious about this i'm i'm very committed about this you know and uh, absolutely uh, the way people get so worked up is this kind of they you know they're, they're almost like losing control of their ability not to act on right um so uh, speaking of um speaking of outrage i I saw, I read an interesting thing that you wrote um, about forgiveness. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I thought it was, uh, it was very interesting, this idea of how, um, why, why forgiveness can be so hard uh, for people. Did you see the, the, I think there was just one comment on that, or maybe there's been more I by didn't now. Look but at the, but the, the first comment was, was by some individual who said something like, okay, so we're all hard- hardwired to, to punish individuals and, and exact revenge, and, you know, what kind of a life is that? Um, but I think, you know, the point I was really trying to make in that, in that piece... You should set up um, kind of what you were talking about in the piece yeah, as well. Yeah, so 
Um, so this is a piece that was originally written for Evolution, This View of Life, which is a web magazine that I have been um, uh, an editor at with Dominic Johnson of the politics section. The great thing about this um, this website, Evolution, This View of Life, is that it organizes all the sort of um, current evidence and, and news and writing on different aspects, all different aspects of social organization from an evolutionary perspective. It's, it's all things social from an evolutionary perspective, from you know politics to economics to culture and religion. It's all organized there, and the editors are, are really great and interesting people who, who do a lot in their respective fields. So Dominic Johnson and I um, together edit the politics section of that web magazine, Evolution, This View of Life. And every now and then they do uh, features either by their editors or by people who their editors invite to do these features. And I wrote one, uh, this piece that, that you, you raised on forgiveness. So this was around New Year's Eve, and so I thought, you know, what, what might be a nice thing for people to hear on New Year's? And I thought that a nice thing might be to think about the capacity for forgiveness despite this inherent... Um, let's say, despite um, these psychological mechanisms that we have that also compel us to seek revenge in certain situations. So, so the really fascinating and I think interesting thing about human nature and evolutionary psychology specifically is that it reveals a portrait of the mind that's incredibly variegated and conditional. So, I mean, we're not designed to go fight our neighbors and we're also not designed to be complete altruists we're, we're conditional strategists we're, desi- we're designed to, to follow strategies that make sense in different situations um, and and so um, on the one hand we have these adaptations that help us to solve uh, conflict resolution by or, or situations of conflict with others by simply seeking revenge to eliminating them and on the other hand we have substantial amount of evidence showing that we actually we have these evolved intuitions that allow us to find cooperative solutions to conflicts when that makes sense and so the question is when does it make sense right how do you explain what the conditions are under which you'll seek revenge versus try and find an opportunity for forgiveness right we have these selfish genes yeah what, exactly what's the point of cooperating yeah absolutely and and actually there's there's a great value to cooperating particularly for a social species um, because under certain circumstances, we can gain a lot more from cooperative relationships with others uh, because, you know, fighting is costly. Mm. It's a huge cost and it's a, it's a great risk to the individual. It's a great risk to the group. And if there, can, and if there are ways to solve that problem uh, that yield substantial benefits via cooperative means, then, then, then that would be a reliable evolutionary cue that you'd want your mind to be able to take advantage of. I mean, this is um, a thing about the environment that your mind should be ready to to, uh, to sort of engage in when the conditions make it uh, worthwhile. So, for example, Michael McCullough has has a great book on on forgiveness and a little bit on on revenge. And uh, the argument from from him and his lab has been that well, forgiveness makes sense when you can be sure that the other person other person is not going to exploit you in the future, and when they have high association value. And that doesn't mean that you're sitting there drawing out these calculations. It just means that you're attending to these cues in the environment and the person that indicate to you, you know, are they going to screw me over again in the future? Right. Is this person uh, useful in some sense, such that I should seek to rehabilitate the relationship? rather than simply seek a, a punitive uh, recourse. So, you know, the nice thing about all this research is really that we have, you know, angels and demons inside of us. 
and, and the question is really, you know, it does come down to circumstance a lot. I mean, you can't just look and say, well, we have these, uh, we have this biological legacy of warfare, or look, we have this biological legacy of cooperation. We have both of those, but that mm-hmm. doesn't help us to understand what kind of person we're going to be in our lives. Only our interactions can do that, and which is a nice, you know, brings us back to the issue of intersubjectivity. It's not written. You know, it depends on your interactions with people and all of that is contingent yeah a lot of times cooperation has a very low cost like we were talking about uh, um before we recorded i took a uber ride over here and you hadn't done you uber and i was telling you a little bit about my positive experience with it this isn't an advertisement for uber by the way i don't care if any of you use it or not but but it's it, but it's not like i um I could be like, oh, maybe I shouldn't tell Anthony about Uber because if he's not using the service, that I, maybe I'll be able to get ahead by using it, you right. know. <laughs> Whereas it makes a lot – there's zero cost to me to tell you about this and then we're cooperating and, and you know, you're coming on. Absolutely. High benefit, low cost. I mean, that's just a really easy way to – to, to build allies. Right. And now here we are having this conversation. I'll make sure that I put the um, evolution, um, this view of life. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, I'll put that on, on the website and everything. And then I get a great guest on my show. Hooray for cooperation. So you, you said you received um, a little bit of... Uh, uh, <laughs> what was the comment? What was the grief that you got? Uh, it was something like uh, I think the, the the reader's reaction was was generally along the lines of of that we're all hardwired for revenge and cooperation is impossible, which I actually found really surprising because it was in sort of reaction to that perspective that I that I wrote the piece and then I just I, I meant to respond to it and I never did but but you know I think um, anytime you raise the the question of biology. Right. There's, uh, you know, Richard Dawkins had a nice way of saying, uh, a, a nice way of thinking about it. And, and there might actually be something about our biological design that makes us not want to accept the possibility that we have a biological design right, you know, that, right. that causes us to think about things in certain ways. I think there's a lot of sense to that. Yeah. I mean, you may, people may not want to talk about, say, say a relationship. You may not want to have a conversation about, um, about, jealousy or cheating or something like that because these are bad icky negative things but um you may want to have love or a family or whatever and and to do that it certainly helps to know what what some problems (laughs) may be to uh, you know to deal with those problems yeah all of these are all of these these uh these these tendencies these um behaviors are you know they're tools in the adaptive toolkit and we have all of these tools and depending on the circumstance depending on the situation depending on our history you know we may use certain tools over others but we have all of those tools and we're quite flexible as well um so so obviously our our early biology um certainly uh played a big role in in kind of the construction of our early cultures, certainly, um, and, um, you know, our propensity for aggression or cooperation. But how much, how much do you think that that culture then kind of, uh, there's the feedback loop of culture then influencing biology, like, um, you, you know, put in the same way that, um, that you may not, uh, you, you don't meet a lot of like asexual people or or people that aren't interested in sex or necessarily 
kids. I mean, some people might not be interested in kids, but they want to have sex anyway and then accidentally have kids. But but you don't see a lot of asexuals in the culture because often any any of our ancestors that were asexual probably you know got got weeded out or, or people that were dead set against kids they probably had less kids than than people that weren't and in the same way i often wonder if some of um say religious beliefs that are say against comp- contraception or something like that if that then leads to more offspring you know people that don't believe in contraception don't use it that leads to more offspring and then and then their offspring ends up kind of feeding into this same cultural belief and around and around it goes. I, I, I don't know if that's the best example in the world, but it's just the idea of it. I wonder how much, um, it, if that's the way in which kind of culture evolves sometimes. Like I, I was thinking of sort of a joke the other day about how, because uh, I, I was kind of irritated. I wanted to get some business done on a, on a Sunday, and I wish I could go to the post office or whatever. And it's like, oh, why aren't businesses out? Why don't we have like... 30-hour work weeks where people can have part-time jobs and some people work on the weekends or whatever it might be and how it kind of started back with, you know, the Sabbath or, you know, have, having a day off, uh, this sacred day. And um, and, and I, I wonder, I was kind of thinking that any religion that instead would have been like, on Sunday... We're going to work three times the hours for God. <laughs> those, those cultures, those people are probably like, I don't like your God very much. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so it, you don't. You certainly don't have to use those examples. Those examples might be very silly. To, to I'm trying to illustrate yeah. the point. Do you know what I'm trying I to do. say? Yeah. So there's a great book. If you haven't read it, I think you'd really enjoy it uh, by Dan Sperber, called Explaining Culture. And he takes this idea, um, I think, of, of memes that's been developed and played around with a lot. And he looks at it from the perspective of epidemiology. And he says, what we need to understand culture and the spread of culture is an epi- epidemiology of memes. Essentially, thinking about these ideas as um, diseases, but not in the way we think about diseases as these horrible things we need to avoid, just, just in terms of the phenomenology, like how they spread, right? And so the question from that perspective becomes, why do certain ideas become popular? You know, why do certain ideas, when we hear them, we think, gosh, that's brilliant, and share them with our friends, and other ideas we think, you know, that's ridiculous, and quickly forget them. So, so one idea is that one idea about ideas is that um, you know there are certain ideas, particularly those relating to, for example, institutions or, or the way society should should operate. You know, for example, your 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 counterintuitive idea of let's work three times as hard on Sundays, right? I mean, that would just probably have a hard time spreading. But I don't know. You know, crazier things have happened in history. I think, um, and so so. One idea here is that, you know, we need to think a little bit more creatively about how these ideas mesh with our evolved preferences. Um, So one of the things that I've been thinking about for a while, and I'm not really sure if it's right or if it's not right, but I think there's some, I think some people have done a little bit of work on it, uh, is the question of democracy. Which is difficult because it's highly politicized and, and, um, you know, there's this question of, you know, is, is there something about democracy that is 
inherently appealing to the mind's eye. So right now in one of my classes, I'm, I'm, I'm spending some time talking about the Enlightenment philosophers. And the Enlightenment philosophers, we're kind of trying to do, we're kind of trying to do a, or accomplish a, a similar set of goals, you know, to, to try and use reason and logic and science to, to see if they could sort of figure out, to deduce what might be our universal human nature and why certain rights, rules, obligations should be or are universally accepted by humans, by humankind, you know, people everywhere. And so you might have, you might think about this in the context of, of international relations and ask, you know, is there something about democracy that is innately appealing to humans because of the way our minds are designed to think about political relationships? Um, and one possibility is, for example, uh, so right now I'm, I'm working on a, on a paper on leadership for a conference uh, on the role of leaders in, con- in in conflict. And so one of the interesting sort of results or, 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 or I think, um, yeah, results from, from this research that's come out on how to explain leadership from an evolutionary perspective is that if we're going to think seriously about the role that leaders serve, we also have to think about the flip side of the leadership problem, which is why would anyone follow a leader? So leaders and followers exist in this kind of evolutionary arms race. Um, You know, there are instances in which leaders are useful for the group in order to accomplish certain objectives, but this opens up the possibility of exploitation to the extent that leaders, you know, try and take a little off the top when they shouldn't, for example, so to speak. Um, So, there's this arms race between leaders and followers because leaders provide a very useful function, um, but the challenge for followers is to is to be able to prevent exploitation by leaders. And democracy is a sort of nice way of solving that problem, uh, a nice way of balancing the interests of leaders and followers. And so I think there might be something to the argument that leader that democracy is as popular as it is. Because it solves or addresses the leader-follower dynamic, this evolutionary arms race, in a really unique way that becomes uniquely possible in a modern environment with modern institutions mm. that maybe wasn't as possible in ancestral environments. Um, so, you know, of course, there's the there there are alternative explanations for why democracy is is so popular, and you know, obviously, some uh, would like to say it's because it's a, it's a gift from God. You know, um, right. Bush's uh, State of the Union address. I remember particularly sitting down in front of the television and watching him give this address, and I was just struck by it, uh, by how by how profound this statement was. Because <laughs> he gets up, you know, and he's he's facing Congress, and he says uh, something like, "Democracy is not." America's gift to the world. It's God's gift to the world. And and we're basically delivering it to the rest of the world. So I think that's emblematic of the fact that we think there's something deep about democracy, whether we attribute that to God or or whatever is beside the point. But we we all seem to think there's something deep about even, you know, even America's critics. I mean, we'll say some we'll say, you know, democracy, we want democracy. Right, right, right. I mean, often, I mean, just as far as leaders go, I mean, leaders have often used like, this is my God given, I'm, I'm God's heir or whatever. And, and communism had sort of this universal truth about it as well. Um, But, uh, but yeah, that, well, it strikes me as, I mean, when, when there was, you know, once there was all this division of labor and then people learn to have these specialized skills and and um and then it, you know it didn't it didn't make sense for everyone to try to make the best shoe all the time because you could have one guy that could do that and then you know these we organized these 
larger and larger cities and you know you talk with most people and most people are like oh i'd never want to be a, a politician or whatever but you do need some of these leaders but democracy is still like i get to have a say yeah um even though that sometimes might be in a little principle, bit of an illusion yeah, maybe it doesn't happen in practice but <laughs> right. it's the principle that makes it so attractive hmm. um that's fascinating um i was so so when you study uh, so when you study politics um and 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 you're looking at uh, you're you're looking at all these debates and everything that are going on and and now you know people are starting to get revved up about the elections and you can't you can't escape um the tv without watching it it is it hard for you to watch sometimes? Well, it's probably a little hard for everyone to watch the news um, once in a while. But uh, it's just—I mean, when you're when you're looking at things through this kind of more informed or psychological or evolutionary lens, and then you see people saying like, "This was God. God gave us this," and <laughs> making. Arguments like that, it must drive you a little crazy. Um, but but it's it's still interesting. Uh, to me, that's also interesting how we kind of evolved to, like, for example, what they show on the news, people think that the news is some reflection of reality or the most important information on the day that you need to hear, where a lot of times it's these very extreme, highly salient you know, there's a couple murders and someone won the lottery and now a squirrel riding on on jet skis or something. Yeah. Something like that. And that's the news and people watch it and they're like, oh, this must be important. It's it's the news. <laughs> but, <laughs> but but there 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 must be kind of something about that as well. Like how how we've kind of evolved or, or why our psychology attaches to that so much. I, I mean, I imagine there's a million different factors and this is probably like way too vague of a um, conversation to have. But, but, but what what are some of your thoughts or frustrations when, when you're watching? Like, what do you wish people were talking more about on, on uh, CNN or whatever it might be? Wow. <laughs> Way too big of what a question. What do I wish people were talking? I don't know. <laughs> or or I, how I, conversations were presented. Yeah. So I always surprise people when I tell them I just, I find American politics disgusting. Yeah. I think it's all disgusting. I don't, I don't like watching the debates. I really love the SNL spoofs on the debates because I think they captured the reality of it. And that's interesting to me because, right. the, you know, it's that sort of, um, I think in many in, in many ways, and I and I think you you can probably see to the heart of this maybe even better than I can. It, there's something about humor that cuts a knife straight to human nature. It just cuts a knife through all the BS, and it says this is what's happening, right? This is how we're reacting to to situations. This is, you know, and and it's comical. And part of the reason why it's funny is because it strikes a chord with us. We know it's right. We know it's right, and and we laugh because almost despite ourselves. Um, and, and, uh, so I don't have any idea what I would like to see on CNN, but I know that whenever, uh, you know, if it, if it's about Trump or if it's about presidential elections, it's, it's just, um, you know, it's, it's, 
it's a lot of mudslinging and it's a lot of um, caricature. Uh, what's the word? Um, caricatures of your opponent's ideas and beliefs. Yeah. Deliberate misrepresentations. Ad hominem. Um, ad hominem uh, criticisms. And you know, there's a Mark Mark uh, Mark Twain, or at least he's attributed to having said this, but um, he's supposed to have said, you know, history doesn't repeat itself; it rhymes. And, you know, you can take that perspective and you can say, wow, this is really fascinating. What we're seeing is, you know, a constant replaying out of these very common and basic human themes. Um, but sometimes it just gets nauseating. I mean, it, it, just the, the tone and the character of American politics, I don't think it's gotten worse. Um, I, I, I think people have made very good arguments about the fact that it has gotten worse. I'm not sure that it has. I'm not really convinced about that. I think that's just politics. Um, and so for me, a lot of the news, and I think for most people, just for different reasons, uh, the news is just pretty tragic. It's like, wow, there's, there goes group A dehumanizing and attacking another, you know, group B again. And, um, it's sad, but it's also, you know, data for research. So, right. I don't know. So I guess I don't even fully know what a political psychologist does necessarily. Yeah. Um, especially, you know, you, you beat a, uh, a political psychologist who doesn't necessarily like politics. Um, but, but the study of politics <laughs> is, is different than liking the politics themselves. Yeah. I mean, I think the political dynamics are fascinating. Right. It's just seeing them play out is, is, can be you know quickly nauseating and you know a lot of that too is is my particular training i'm not we political science has got these particular subfields american politics comparative politics political theory international relations and i i'm really interested in international relations you know uh, relations among states among among big coalitions uh warfare things like that Mm. um and so when it gets to questions of, of voting and voting behavior voting patterns how do we predict how people will vote on this issue versus that uh, I can see that there would be a lot there interesting uh, psychologically as well as evolutionarily. Uh, one of my colleagues, Michael Bang-Peterson, does amazing work on this question. Um, and so there are there are folks who do very smart work on it, and there's very there are very interesting questions to be asked. But I, for whatever reason, just cannot, I can't, right, right. I can't stomach American politics, I, which is ironic because, you know, here I am studying like revenge and dehumanization and warfare internationally. Right. Um, but that just happens to be what's more interesting to me. Well, uh, all right. So great. So let's talk about that. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in, uh, you know, you kind of talked about a little bit of the flexibility of kind of uh, cooperation or revenge in all of these different contexts. And and it's interesting when you're talking about a state level how you can have an event like 9-11 where all of a sudden everyone has a flag outside their house and and you know people notice everyone everyone's bonding together not not even necessarily the US but around the world and and um and all of a sudden we don't uh, we don't care so much about what race or political party you are or sexual orientation or whatever all, all of a sudden it seems like we're cooperating a lot more than normal and then and then all of a sudden you go to um uh it, it's an election year and then it and then it, it's easy 
to see things all of a sudden start dividing. You know, all of a sudden it's Democrat versus Republican, and then and then there's Republican primary. So now it's Republican against pro, uh, Republican, and and like this guy's so far off from what I believe. You know, they're standing on the same stage from the from the same party. Right. So it's interesting how how we can identify with different groups in such a flexible it way. Is. It is. Yeah, and I think this, you know, again is 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 testament to that to that really unique and special and complicated uh blend between biology and culture. And I think our group affiliations are the perfect example of that because on the one hand we have what Matt Ridley called uh a human groupishness. I mean, we love groups. I think that's an inescapable fact of human reality and you're always going to find individuals who prefer to live the hermit life and be apart from the group and i think that's just a consequence of sort of normal biological variation across the spectrum mm-hmm. but but the species-wide reality of the situation now as well as ancestrally is that we love our groups and we love thinking about what groups we're part of what groups do we use to to help i ide- uh, uh, define our identities as individuals um, and so on the one hand, <clears throat> our groupishness is inescapable. On the other right. hand, the labels that we give to those groups, the symbols that we give to those groups, what we call them, where we draw the boundaries, that is the stuff of you know cultural, political, social manipulation. I mean, that needs to be played out. That's going to be that's going to vary from from place to place, from time to time. And that's exactly what you would expect from a, a psychology that's designed to adaptively re, uh, respond to you know, a contingent environment. Hmm. Um, so it, it's, um, it's it, to me, it's very interesting that, I mean, obviously when you, when you look at it and you look at things on bigger and bigger scales, especially, I mean, you see so much of this when tragedy happens. It doesn't need to be 9-11. It could be an earthquake or a tsunami or whatever. And, and especially when people are vulnerable is, is when people tend to, uh, all of a sudden, we care very much about Japan or you yeah. know, Haiti or wherever, right. um, the tragedy, whereas we might not care so much. Um, but then it's also, a, as things get smaller, uh, you, know, as I, you said you spent some time in, uh, in Minneapolis. I, I'm <laughs> from La Crosse, and was, La Crosse is on the border of Minnesota in Iowa, I mean, it's like a ten-minute, <laughs> maybe a twenty-minute drive to to get to either one. And if you're if you're in Wisconsin, it just seems unbelievable that someone could be a Vikings fan, <laughs> you know. Um, and and so it, even though it, your proximity, it, you get angry at a Vikings fan, even though they're right next door to you, but you might not care about a Giants fan or something like that that's in, in the same, um, uh, you know, over in New York or whatever. And, and along those same lines, it's weird that we... Uh, it, it feels like when things get smaller, the um, the groups get smaller. I feel like the bonds get stronger. And I, I sometimes wonder if that's why we kind of present these outgroups a little more or make ourselves outgroups to like if, if you're say um uh hasidic jew or a biker or something like that and you have this you have um kind of the you, the way that you look is going to make you an outcast to some people it's going going to kind of 
Yeah. Some people are going to be alienated um, by, or you have a mohawk or whatever it might be. Um, but, but then within that club or group that you are in, where people are, uh, have similar beliefs or it, it's almost like a, um, uh, it, it's almost like because it makes you feel like such an outsider to everyone else, it makes you, it really solidifies that in group. Um, a little more. I, I don't know. If, yeah. <laughs> does, does any of that make sense? Yeah. Um, so it, it, I guess I'm not 100% familiar with all of your research. Um, and, and so I'm just trying to um, make sense of how, how, how states are kind of created in the first place and how these relations um, occur and uh, what kind of studies you may yeah, have done. Yeah. So, um, Sorry two, two if I'm throwing are, a no, lot No, that's fine. You. That's the two questions there. One, the first is, uh, you know, how do we explain our, our, our sort of state affiliations, you know, statewide affiliations? And, and these are, this is a really bizarre and interesting thing. It's amazing. It's, it's, a, it's a puzzle that deserves explanation, and I'm not sure that there is a good explanation. But, there, you know, as always, there's, there's theories. Um, and so um, I think as you point out, it's you know we, it's easy for us to form associations at the local level. We can we can get you know involved in our neighborhoods and form groups. We can join you know Giants fan club or Dodgers fan club or, or what have you. And those associations are really meaningful and they're powerful to us on, on a daily basis. And then in the back of our minds, we're thinking, yeah, we're Americans. Um, but it really takes some sort of. I mean, I think the default is you are operating at a local level with the sort of background framing that, yes, I'm part of this larger group. Um, but then what changes that, what causes a shift is the presence of, uh, for example, crisis or tragedy. You mentioned like earthquakes, you know, natural disasters, warfare. These things basically are external reminders of these broader coalitional affiliations, which, you know, causes to sort of shift the frame a little bit to, to think about the fact that we're being threatened, not because we're a Giants fan, but because we're Americans, Right. And, and that shared threat activates those same that same coalitional psychology that was active in, in, in guiding your, your re reactions and responses to other Giants fans now is being used and employed when thinking about your, your sympathies and efforts to support fellow Americans across you know, the country. One of the things, one of the, um, I think, bumper stickers or whatever, uh, like posters or, or something, catchphrases that was going around after 9-11 was, you know, we're all Americans now. And what's interesting about that is that it needs to be said, because obviously from a rational perspective, we've always been all Americans, but it's like to emphasize now we're all Americans, right? It's the threat that made that identity real. Um, and so I think when those threats and opportunities mirror the significant threats and opportunities that have that coalitions have encountered ancestrally, that's where you really see those coalitional affiliations activate in ways that they don't ordinarily activate uh, on a day to day basis. So you don't go around thinking of yourself as an American unless right. they're unless your identity as an American is the thing that's being threatened, as it was, for example, in 9-11 or as it was for Americans during Pearl Harbor, uh, et cetera. Hmm. Um, and. Do you think that um, with with the last thing that I was saying? Do you do you think that people um, on when when there's not so much of a threat um, and it's almost like when there's less at stake, I feel like people find more ways to divide themselves 
yeah. some ways. Right. Yeah, because that is that that affiliation really isn't doing anything for you at a personal mm-hmm. level. You know, it's not it's not helping you find friends. It's not um, helping you solve the sort of immediate problems of of living. Uh, and so I think it's it's not surprising that that coalitional identity, that superordinate identity, sort of falls to the side. It isn't lost. It just falls to the side. One of the one of the amazing things about humans, which I think by the way makes uh, things like nation states possible, is that we're able to think really creatively about nested coalitional affiliations. I'm an American, I'm a Californian, I'm a Los Angeles, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, ex-university alumni, I am a Dodgers fan, I'm a skier, I'm a tennis player, mm. uh, you know, and we have all of these, these nested and overlapping coalitional affiliations and, and they get triggered when it's useful for them to be triggered. I mean, we don't go around sort of thinking about the centrality of these identifications at all moments that would just be ridiculous and overwhelming um so it's it's that coalitional complexity that plasticity that enables that easily enables us to think about things like the nation state which is you know it's 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 a it's a construction I mean, you can't point to the nation state it, it exists because we agree it exists so john tooby uh, one of my mentors liked to say about uh um, coalitional behavior that it's basically, you know, coalitions are collective hallucinations. Mm-hmm. They agree, they're, they're in our shared minds and we manipulate the meaning of these coalitions uh, to serve uh, individual and collective ends. But they are, you know, at the end of the day, they're hallucinations, but they're useful and adaptive right. uh, hallucinations. And that's interesting how, how um, you know, obviously it makes sense that it's context dependent. Uh, if you're in a war, you're not calling up your tennis player group. If I want to learn more about this stuff, I, I don't necessarily um, uh, call up my, um, my drinking buddies, uh, you know, to learn more about evolution. And I don't necessarily call up academia when I want to blow off some steam or, you know. Um, so I, I have one more um, kind of big topic I wanted to go over uh, with you quick. So quick, be, uh, before we do that, um, if I could have you, what is uh, the charity of your choice for the charity of the week? So the charity that I chose was um, a, an organization in Portland, which is called Friends of Trees. Um, all right. That's awesome. And I'll have a link to Friends of Trees um, and on, on the herewearepodcast.com website. So go and check that out. And I so, – so this is what I'm wondering um, from your perspective, and it may not – uh, you don't have to like offer an opinion or, but, but maybe you'll be able to give some historical insight or, or some trends that you see as far as, um, it, it, there's a lot of arguments now that this is kind of the safest time in human history. And that, that's seems kind of controversial. It seems like a lot of people, um, don't necessarily agree with that. Um, but uh, these, it, I, I'm just wondering if, if you see the direction going toward more of a unification and globalization uh, of the world, or if this is just, if you think it's just going to be for the foreseeable future, very uh, kind of yeah. flexing back and forth and yeah. 
Uh, do you have yeah. any insights? Any- this is great. I actually I really should have just had my, my students sit, sit down on this because a lot of the themes that we're talking about are, are themes that we've been covering in one of my classes anyways. Um, so I have this class called Nation States and Global Challenges. Mm-hmm. And despite the weird, broad and unhelpful name of the class, <laughs> it's, it's, it's about um, you know, when and why humans decide that certain challenges are things that we want to cooperate to solve. So one of the things we talk about is slavery. You know, slavery was, has been uh, a really dark component of, of human history, but there came a time during which a group of individuals came together and decided that this was not, you know, uh, slavery was wrong. It was an evil. And, you know, up until this point, it was just kind of considered, you know, like part of the landscape. You wake up, you have tea, you get your slave to make you some food. You know, it's just like unproblematic. You don't think about it. You take it for granted. It's not... It's outside of the, the normative space of things that need to be challenged. But then suddenly humans got together in a certain place in a certain time and decided, you know, this is this is a thing that whereas once we didn't mind it and it was just part of the economy, part of the social organization, now it's a problem and we need to eliminate it. And so what causes individuals to decide that, you know, old patterns of behavior are no longer valid and right and just? And so, you know, I think if you look at particularly, I, I can't speak to, to the broader uh, evidence because this is, you know, ultimately an empirical question. It depends on how you define violence. It depends on how you define, you know, peace. Has the world been becoming more peaceful? Has it been becoming less violent? I think uh, Steve Pinker's work has been really compelling and I'm convinced by it. But, you know, it, a lot of it just depends, like everything else, on how you define your terms. What is violence? What is peace, et cetera? Um, so there's the empirical question that I think, you know, you, you can solve or you can address uh, just sort of by collecting the data on, you know, violence as however you want to define it. Um, but looking specifically at uh, the last, let's say the last few hundred years, I think modern history has been really unique in in several ways, in ways that I think are no, are, are noteworthy enough to want to say, you know, we've made significant progress on this question on these issues without also saying, uh, yeah, we're doing great. Let's pat ourselves on the back. There's nothing more to be done. You know, Francis Fukuyama, end of history type stuff. I mean, there's clearly a lot more to be done and there are clearly lots of ills and evils that exist in the world. But that's not to say that there hasn't been a tremendous amount of progress. And I think uh, Pinker outlines the case for that really well. Um, One of the things he talks about in his book is the phenomenon of dehumanization, which again, relates back to the coalitional issues we've been talking about because we tend to uh, find it easier to dehumanize individuals in outgroups rather than individuals who are part of our own group. And so part of the process of, let's say, rehumanizing individuals is by reclassifying those individuals as not part of outgroups but as part of a shared community. So one of the things we we saw, one of the one of the symbols of the abolitionist movement in Britain was this this uh, this coin with a, a picture, a figure of a slave, and on the coin is is the inscription, "Am I not a brother too?" or something like that. I might have the exact phrasing wrong. And so that that is a symbol that says to you that sending the cue that you've drawn the coalitional lines incorrectly. This guy is part of our group. He's not an outgroup member. And so and so that sort of, um, let's say undoes or allows the possibility of rehumanization because now this is a member of our coalition. So so you notice we haven't escaped in-group, out-group dynamics. We haven't escaped that sort of in-group, out-group, uh, the, the sort of vicious cycles that, that 
antagonist groups get locked in, all we've done is successfully manipulate those boundaries in a way that becomes ever more inclusive. Hmm. Um, and so when we're able to do that, we see triumphs, triumphs regarding human nature, triumphs regarding limitations on, on things like genocide or ethnic cleansing, which were once just part of, you know, it was just na- the name of the game when it came to international warfare. What do you do when you beat your enemies? Well, you, you destroy them hmm. and you just expect that that's going to happen. And why would you challenge that? Um, but as, uh, you know, the history, as, as history has unfolded, uh, you know, we see increasingly people wanting to redraw the boundaries of groups in such a way that we can sort of expand inclusivity. So um, there's, a, there's a great book that, that sort of gets at this question by Robert Wright, who also wrote The Moral Animal. Uh, and this book is called Non-Zero, The Logic of Human Destiny, I think, The Logic of Human Destiny. So not, not modest at all, but very interesting because right. he's looking at this question, how have humans, you know, the history, he, he basically rewrites human history from the perspective of uh, a steady and inevitable expansion ever outward of political social organizations. We're getting better and better at making the groups bigger and more inclusive, which doesn't mean we've escaped the problems of you know those intercoalitional dynamics, but to the extent that we can redraw the boundaries in a way that allows us to, let's say, serve the cause of humanity, then we can define that as real progress. Hmm. Do, do you think that now that um, with, with things like the, the Internet and international trade, where, where now international cooperation has you know, kind of a higher benefit for uh, particular regions than than perhaps it did uh, in the past and with uh, just technology and and everything and and, and people being able to uh, you know watch American YouTube videos or, or we can watch um, yeah. foreign films and um, do you think that that's playing a factor in in um, some of the unification um, just our technology and possibly even our our um, technology helping our availability of, of getting more means and um, maybe yeah. life not being as hard. Uh, so I'm, I'm wondering if, if you think in the future more of these bo- boundaries that we're drawing are going to be less geographical and more kind of like political or... or um, it, it, I think, I mean, we're always going to be wired to find groups, but we'll, we'll care more about, you know, our tennis <laughs> group or whatever than, than we will about Iraq versus the U.S. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, I think um, I think whenever groups go to war, I think that's a really powerful, it's an emotionally powerful trigger that I think will reliably cause individuals to, to continue to think about, about groups in those ways. And, and, to, and, to, and, you know, so for example, when, when on the one hand we can say, well, We've we've uh, made a lot of progress in terms of expanding the scope of, of coalitional inclusivity, but we haven't eliminated groupishness. Um, and I think uh, I'm not sure if we need to, but as long as as that uh, as those coalitional identities can be manipulated, there will always be individuals or subsets of individuals for whom it will benefit them to redraw the boundaries in a different way, right? And so there's and so um, I think. Um, mm. You know, conflict is certainly, well, 
let me let me put it this way. So so one of the things you mentioned is you know the cost of war versus the benefits of peace, and this was uh, uh, actually Azar Gat's argument in his book War uh, in Human Civilization. He says, well, it's not that the costs of war have increased so dramatically; it's that the benefits of peace have really increased dramatically. But I think it's both, right? I mean, it's, it's definitely both. Certainly, the costs of war. Um, whether or not they have in reality increased, have increased in our eyes. We can see this in the way we think about nuclear weapons, right? We believe that that is a serious existential threat in a way that other weapons haven't been. So the calculation of the cost is really beside the point because we believe that that's a serious cost, and so we're going to act upon it um, based on that assumption. But, you know, and this and this caution that's inspired by the greater cost of war in modern environments allows in part the possibility for individuals to, to reap the benefits of, of cooperation, to allow the, the cooperative, you know, our cooperative uh, instincts, let's say, to drive the ball game more than they have in the past mm-hmm. because the fear of vulnerability isn't so much there, at least for... Uh, among certain countries, certainly not among all countries, but among certain countries, for example, like uh, Europe and the United States or the so-called triad economies of North America, East Asia and uh, and Europe. So, you know, it happens in fits and starts. We see zones of relative peace existing awkwardly alongside zones of continued warfare. Um, and so I think it's disingenuous to just sort of say generally, broadly, you know, things are great now and, and things were so terrible in the past because there are, you know, there are a lot of regions of the world where that are still stuck in the kinds of violence that the human race has kind of always been stuck in. Uh, so do you think that the nuclear weapons kind of force cooperation in a way is it like the doomsday device kind of situation where once you have enough bombs to where anyone can blow up the world? I mean, in, uh, assuming there's not just like one crazy dictator that just wants to blow up the whole world or whatever. <laughs> Do you think that that is in a way kind of forcing um, cooperation on, on a lot of areas? It's an interesting question. I mean, I think um, is are, is the presence of nuclear weapons. I don't, I certainly don't think it's, it's compelling cooperation. I think if anything, it's opening a space for it. Mm. Um, but whether or not we want to sort of fill that space with cooperation is one thing, or whether we want to just sort of stick to our corners and not get involved is, is another. Mm. So I think nuclear weapons have certainly been one of the big variables that have allowed peace to flourish. I'm not like prone. Yeah. No, but it's, a, it's a, like that. but that's, that's the question. I yeah. mean, um, you know, because we have to think about the benefits of peace alongside the costs of war and certainly for nuclear states, the costs of war are much higher than they've ever, ever, ever been. And I mm-hmm. think that gives any leader, any individual pause when thinking about uh, the utility, the relative utility of using war as an instrument of statecraft. And when it becomes so prohibitive, when the costs increase so much, then, uh, you know, y- you can't help but find uh, methods short of war to achieve your objectives. And that's certainly, you know, the fact that 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 the increase in costs of war have occurred alongside uh, things like international globalization, uh, economic liberalization, that uh, allow states to achieve their objectives in terms of in terms of economic wealth through trade instead of through war or through empire. Then, you know, if states can find ways to get what they want through methods short of war, assuming that war is costly, then you would expect all things equal for there to be more cooperation than war. The problem is every now and then. 
our, you know, evolved psychology is going to be, you know, really excited about the possibility of retaliating against an enemy that hurts us. Mm -hmm. Right. And so those, those instances will be sufficient to overwhelm, you know, the economic, uh, the opportunity of getting what you want through economic means. So, you know, it's, it's an ever evolving situation. It's, it's, I, I think it's, it's challenging and risky to think about, you know, are we headed towards a world government or are we headed towards the elimination of, of, of state boundaries or coalitional boundaries? I, I always am a little reluctant to infer directionality from history, but you know, you can't deny that there does seem to be this kind of rough trend towards greater and greater levels of, of, uh, association, political association. And that tends to come with, with the byproduct of, greater inclusiveness, uh, more respect for, for individual rights. Uh, there does seem to be some empirical evidence showing that certain forms of violence are in decline. And I think that's, it's worthwhile to think about, you know, maybe there is something about the modern international system that is operating as a kind of constraint or manipulating that evolved psychology in a way that allows for cooperation to take place. Whereas, um, our violent tendencies were, were more, uh, let's say less restricted in the past. Right. Uh, well, this has been an amazing conversation. I, I'm glad you were able uh, to join me today. I think this is going to be a very popular episode. I bet people are going to share this a bunch. Um, and I bet some listeners are going to listen to it twice. Um, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you, Anthony Lopez, so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Hope you had a good time. And thank you, listeners, for downloading and being curious and i'll talk with you next week thank you guys for listening as promised i'm going to keep this outro short uh next week on the program we're going to be talking about mixed emotions can you feel happy and sad at the same time at the exact same time can your consciousness feel both of those things uh hot and cold at at the exact same time uh to me it seemed intuitive that you that you could um and it turns out it's it's quite a debate um and really 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 interesting studies in subject matter so tune in next week for some conversation on mixed emotions Kyle Ayers, I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it, and here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL, the 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly-collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God.
Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would, he even, why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced ve-a-pe in Spanish, <laughs> oh my he spots his dear friend who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. <laughs> Scarface yells out his signature line. <laughs> Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. <laughs> oh, my God. 